Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Today we present the third and final part of a discussion between Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, and his guest, Bruce Cameron, Reed Larson professor at Regent University, a Christian research educational facility in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Their topic, labor unions. Good? Bad? Dangerous? You be the judge. Their conversations were recorded in the studios of the Three Angels Broadcasting Network. Let's listen. Let's talk a little bit about how do we relate to labor unions, especially Seventh-day Adventists, especially Christians and those that have principles. You know, why is there a problem uh, joining a labor union and, and what is the dynamic that's so problematic? Well, the historical concern of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its members has been that labor unions approach the employer in a way that's inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible. For example, in Ephesians 6, we read that uh, we should work for our employers if we're working for God. The right. idea of striking against God, the, the idea of blackjacking God, you know, to get him to give more Wasn't benefits. Jesus that told that parable about the, the workmen hiring people at different points during the day and they come to him and, and try cry foul and he says, you know, this was our agreement, you know, why are you challenging me basically? Precisely. Uh, labor unions believe everyone should be paid the same amount who's in the same job classifications, contrary to that parable. But even more contrary is, you remember the story of the soldiers who came to John the Baptist and said, to him, what should we do? That's in Luke 3. And John the Baptist said to them, don't extort money and be content with your wages. I think that is a job description for organized labor, extorting money and spreading discontent for wages. Also, in Revelation, it says as a characteristic of the end times that the employer has held back wages by fraud. What the Bible argues for is, is an ideal social contract. An employer that's charitable and honest toward his employee, an employee that gives appropriate work, doesn't just take the money. And, and so it, it, it has to work on two sides. It is James that says, are you unfair to your servant? Are you unfair to your slave? We have a common master, that is you and the slave. You mistreat that servant and you're accountable to me. So yes, the Bible has <laughs> statements about how employees, it calls them slaves, but I think it's fair to apply it to employees today, how they should treat their employer and how employers should treat employees. Now, the fact that an employer may not treat an employee properly doesn't let an employee off the hook no, of obeying true. God or vice versa. So I don't represent labor unions. I don't represent employers. I only represent employees. <laughs> Well, it seems to me that the approach of organized labor is contrary to the gospel. If you truly are a person who says, the essence of the gospel is this, God gave his life for us. And as a follower, it's my obligation to give up my life for others. Mm. You cannot have that philosophy in life and say to an employer, I'm going to harm your work, your business, if you don't give me more. You cannot say to an employer, as unions often do, I'll break up your stuff. You know, I'll, I'll burn up no, and destroy I, your no, equipment. That's where the unions, you know, I think, have gone beyond civil laws of proprietary, not just uh, moral Christian morality. Right. So, you know, a, a Christian should naturally say, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, is this an association that I should be a part of? Am I being unequally yoked with unbelievers by and joining And then to be in? forced to uh, the dynamic of requiring under some serious penalty, perhaps not even being able to work, that's an amazing uh, compulsion, isn't it? Well, see, that's exactly right. There's another aspect to this, too, of the employees I, I represent. There are a number of labor unions in the United States, including the largest labor union, which is the National Education Association, that are active lobbyists on some of the most important social issues of the day. For yeah. example, the National Education Association is a pro-abortion lobby. It is a pro-homosexual marriage lobby. And so Christians who take those issues very seriously say, wait a minute, do I want to be a part of an organization that's doing that? It's not just how do I treat my employer. But you say, well, do I want to be part of a movement and have my money and my influence used to promote those things? Even as you say that, it just occurred to me, I've never heard how those unions adopted those positions? Was it done in, a, in, in anything close to a democratic process or did just <laughs> the union organizers sort of have an affinity there and this is what they do? Is it reflecting the true majority opinion of their members? I'm sure if the NEA lawyer were listening to this, he'd say, Bruce Cameron, you are not entitled to comment on the democracy <laughs> in, the, in the NEA. The NEA claims it's a huge democratic institution, but I will tell you this, my experience is that it's the NEA activists at the local that are involved in state activities because the rest of the teachers just want to do their job, help their students, go home and be with their family. They're not interested in this other stuff. So you get a corps of activists that elect another corps of activists and you get people at the top who are these hard left activists. And Lincoln, here's the proof of this. Whatever an NEA lawyer might, might say about my argument, here's the proof of it. What does every trade union try to do? They try to protect their work product. The longshoremen don't want ships to come into the non-union ports. They want them to come into the ports where they have agreements. The UAW doesn't want Japanese imports of cars. They want to keep them out. They want to protect their work product. What's the work product for a teacher? It's students. What does abortion do to the number of students in a school? Oh, it's an amazing dynamic. Yeah, thing. what does homosexual marriage do for the number yeah. of students in the school? It's contrary, not in the long-term interest of, of right. what they're paid to do. Is it? It's contrary to their business model. So you cannot say, well, this is just a group of people who are interested in the union's work in collective bargaining. This is a group that has an ideological point of view. Yeah, that goes beyond the, their immediate work activity, really. One of the interesting things is the general counsel of the NEA just, just recently retired. His name is Bob Channon. And Bob has been a friend of mine for years. We obviously disagree on the issues, but we're, we're friendly to each other. Bob's closing farewell at the NEA convention said, in essence, we're not really about collective bargaining. We're about changing the nation. And he complained, I cannot say on this uh, program what he called me. <laughs> he was talking about the lawyers and gave a name that are suing the NEA. I believe I've sued the NEA more than any living lawyer. So I, I actually wrote a note to Bob and said, Bob, I said, you called me this name, but you didn't say my name. You could, should have at least said, <laughs> and that so-and-so, Bruce Cameron. And so he wrote back and said, Bruce, he said, uh, in my prepared speech, there was a footnote that said, I'm not referring to my friend Bruce Cameron here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's seri serious issues at play, and, 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 and I'm glad for you to bring this out because it isn't just as simple as the very basic thing for Adventists about coercion and we shouldn't be co-opted into it and it might compromise our faith. This is very much like voting 
which we should do, well, not so much we should vote, but we should be a, a good citizen of the country. Right. But we don't have a choice about that. That's part of a larger obligation. But an organisation that should be voluntary to make it coercive, to then have an agenda that's out of sync with certainly a, a Christian morality, I think is problematic. And so you're right. We should defend Seventh Adventists and others of faith who don't want to be co-opted into this. So if, tell me some if, more stories if, about if, uh, how you've worked to defend people against this sort of an agenda. Well, see, the employee then is who is convicted of this. You know, the Holy Spirit says to them, look, you shouldn't support this labor union. What do they do? They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to put their family at risk, but they don't want to compromise their obligation to God. So they've got this huge dilemma. So here's what they do. They call me up. <laughs> and one of the great blessings of my life is God has allowed me to litigate these issues. The National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation has funded the cases, so I'm able to help employees for free. And we've been able to move the law from protecting simply Seventh-day Adventists to all sincere religious objectors. So when an employee comes to me and says, Bruce, what should I do? What they need to do is this. First, they have to let the union and the employer know about the conflict. I say, write a letter, lay out the nature of your religious beliefs, and then when the employer and the union get this, that triggers an obligation under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for them to an attempt an accommodation. Are most of them settled at that level? I've gotten the impression with yeah. many employee issues. Most, uh, the, this is a blessing, you know. I would say 95% of the employees come to me when they write a letter to the union, the employer, that ends the problem. Now, what does the employee have to do? The employee pays the union fees to a charity instead of to the union. So what happens? The union is satisfied that everyone is paying fees. Mm -hmm. The employee's conscience is clear and a charity is benefited by this. Yeah. That seems a reasonable approach. Unlike an example I, I gave you privately, but I won't identify it, but I, I was aware of a church organization <laughs> in another country uh, where there were strong unions that they were abiding by the, the union pay guidelines and they were paying every year an, ex an amount of money exactly equal to the union dues to the union to, <laughs> so that they would leave them alone. The, the end result was they might as well have been unionized. They just deprived the workers of some input. In the United States, that's a felony yes, under the, and I can under the why, National Labor Relations Act. <laughs> Professor Bruce Cameron, an expert on unions and religious accommodation. I'll throw something <laughs> up to you just to see your Give reaction. me a hard time. <laughs> uh, you know, I absolutely, the Seventh-day Adventists believe there's a problem with unions requiring membership and so on and some of the things they stand for. And, and I have no question extrapolating from where we are now to, to a, a moment of great crisis. I could see unions working in a bad way to inhibit someone standing for their faith. But I've noticed on a number of occasions in cases in the last few years where a Seventh-day Adventist or someone else of faith is wanting a religious accommodation and the employer is objecting. There's been cases where the union is sympathetic to their case and, and argues on their behalf too. They're not a union member. Are the labor unions always the enemy to freedom of conscience in the workplace? Are there some times that they could at least do some little good? <laughs> well, if a labor union is helping a person obtain a religious accommodation, Praise them. I mean, blessings on them. I have a number of union lawyers throughout the country who cooperate with me on religious accommodation issues. I mentioned the NEA before. The NEA has, it's not written down anywhere, they've made the decision about 15 years ago that they would not 
fight me on religious accommodation, that the NEA itself would cooperate with me on the basic accommodation issue. We're sitting right here in the state of Illinois. The general counsel of the NEA affiliate in Illinois has been extraordinarily cooperative in working out religious accommodation issues with me and will routinely accommodate teachers, public school teachers represented by the NEA who have religious objections. But in general, unions are poison for religious accommodation. A good point that we need to remind our viewers, we're arguing for religious freedom. For just, everyone. Just to get it for our group is a pyrrhic victory. Right. Religious liberty, it's been shown historically, and I think morally from the biblical point of view, everybody should have it. If it's just for you, that's not freedom. That's, not freedom. that's special treatment for me. That's uh, it. That's, an, that's a violation yeah. of church-state separation. Right. So if one church is the favored church. You're definitely on, on, more than on the right track. You, you, <laughs> you're doing a wonderful work in defending people in the context of the union threat. I wouldn't like to characterize it that we are opposed to unions per se, but we're opposed to the dynamic that unions represent to people of faith in the workplace. Right. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call 443-391-7258 or email us through our website at libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at the same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. <laughs>